what is off the groove? It means you've blown the line or you're pushing the limits a little bit too far or just maybe you might be looking for a faster way around the racetrack. Off the Groove with Scotty Dubler. May 17th, 2019, episode number 79. Were you even born in 1979? No, I was born in 80. Damn. Yeah. Such a kid. Yeah. Dude. Dude. First, we got to hit on this bucket list item that was checked this week. I'm pretty proud of this one, and I know you're super stoked about it. Which one? You saw this, right? Cyburn Magazine actually shared our podcast. Dude, that is awesome. It is on their website. The Sideburn Magazine. We're honored to be uh, on there and honored that they even put us anywhere near there, what they do, because that's that's pretty cool. Shout out to Sideburn Magazine, uh, sideburnmagazine.com. Go check them out. Uh, (laughs) You're obviously listening to our podcast already, so you, you know what we do, but what they do is on another level, so. Absolutely, man. We're honored. Uh, let's talk about some Paris racing, man. There was a lot of racing in Paris. It, the weather held off. That was crazy because my phone leading up to the event was 80% chance of rain on Saturday. I still went out, out there anyway. There was a Paris short track on, on Friday night, which was really good. Uh, the infield of the Paris half mile was completely muddy when I got there, so I pitted everybody outside turn one and two, which made it more, I guess, accessible to the fans for the open paddock area. They didn't have to cross the track and get muddy and stuff like that. So I liked where they were pitting. I'm sure it was hard for the riders to get all the way around to get on and off the racetrack. But, you know, for for doing this for the fans, I think it was better for the fans, actually. Nice. I mean, and it, did it rain at all? It didn't rain the whole time I was there. It was kind of wet when I got there on Friday morning, but it, it never rained again. Nice. And, and the track, it didn't look as good as when we were there in 2017. But, I mean, it, I, mean I guess it could have been rained out so i guess you know i think that's part of the problem carter is because of the threat of rain they couldn't continue to put moisture on the racetrack they couldn't put the calcium chloride down i guess they could have but then if we would have rained out with very little rain they would look really stupid so um they had to play catch up all day long the uh the high line came in thanks to morgan mishler for going up there in practice yeah and he set the high line and then you know that was the fastest way around for a while and then all the other riders start going up there too so usually the first group goes out and they cut the line that's where everybody rides and then morgan mishler went up there you know five or seven feet above the groove and made his own line and practice and qualifying and then everybody else followed suit thanks merg yeah buddy uh so let's get let's get into this and, and hammer through pairs because uh we got some pretty interesting stuff a lot of good content for this episode i want to i want to get through the intro here uh super hooligan let's talk about them first uh joe cop still undefeated how about that four for four and he won friday night so yeah. he's been on a roll man and joe cop you know we we had him on last week and he is right now pushing up there to be our number one listed episode and pushing up there what are you talking about he's uh i think he's he's already broken the record super hooligans atop all of our uh, well graham's up there still he hasn't beat graham yet. okay had, all right well it, it's probably because he, he used to be number 43 that's ah, probably why there it is nice um hell of a way to ce- celebrate a 50th birthday too i'll tell you absolutely andy debrino had the lead and uh, looked pretty strong and then here comes joe cop and joe got in front of him andy andy debrino ran with him for a while he was on a, a fairly new motorcycle and i think as andy gets more seat time He'll be giving Joe some fits, but yeah, you know, hats off to Joe Cop four for four to start off 2019. Yeah, first three on a triumph, and he was actually riding a Harley on that one. So I, I, you know, it's always interesting to see when, you know, no matter what the class is, when a rider jumps from one uh, make a model to another, sometimes you have some some issues there. But uh, still holding strong, still undefeated. Good for him. And that super hooligan class, man, it was fun to watch on that half mile. 
it was exciting and i think he switched to the harley just because it's a bigger track you know he felt like it was a bigger motor bigger you know longer straightaways he could go faster on the harley than he could on his 900 cc triumph so i never got that officially that's just my gut feeling so what about the singles man ryan wells picks up his first win in, in quite some time on his yamaha and he was he was the man to beat all day long yeah he was bad fast Stinson racing on a roll you know jd beach with a, with a few solid weeks there and then ryan wells said i gotta step up too and uh, win a race and he did man like you said he was he was the bike to beat wait he was the guy to beat and uh he, he put it right atop the box. Good for him. Also, Michael Enderbitz in his second place finish. I think that was the best career finish for him. Uh, I kind of put that into perspective. Like Paris maybe looked like a great big Lodi, you know, short track, but a bigger version. That's where Enderbitz and cut his teeth. And I think he just felt at home on that racetrack. And then third, our, the third one I wanted to point out was Dan Bromley, who, who had definitely had to be the hard charger. He came from deep in the field. You worked his way all the way up to fourth place. Our points leader, Gautier, finished third right there, so he still is the points leader. Yeah. But I just want to give a shout-out to Bromley, who worked his way up to fourth. And Jesse Janish said he, he was not confident. When I did the pit walk, he said, I don't even I don't even want, know I'm here. He was just expecting to make the main. He finished out the top five. Yeah, I saw Brindley, too. He had a hole and a little injury on the foot. I talked to him. He's targeting a comeback for the red mile. But hopefully he gets back on the bike soon. Yes, I mean, solid race for the singles class. And then we go, go into the production twins, man. Texter. He's on a tear, huh? Yeah, back-to-back wins, you know, Texas and now Paris. And then Ryan Varnes, back-to-back second places. And then Kale Kochman, a solid third-place finish right there. And Kale Kochman was the big winner at the Paris Short Track the night before. And, uh, you know, Kochman's on a roll, too. I, I'm, I'm really starting to like this production twins class. It's giving these people, you know, you know a little bit of spotlight. And uh, good to see Texter on top of the box again. And also, you know, people, not everybody can afford an Indian. And then if you have one, you have to have a backup. So if people can't afford to, you know, buy an Indian or get a ride on an Indian, this is the place for them if they, if they want to move up besides the singles class. I like the production twins class too. And, and like Graham said, it's back in the day with, when we had novice junior expert. So now it's kind of singles, production yeah. twins, yeah. AFT twins. So I like it. Uh, I think the, the fans are starting to like it too. As, as they grasp what's going on, I think they'll like it more and more. Keeps the program going. I like it. Uh, when do we get to see them again? Uh, they'll be they're on all the half miles and miles so they're gonna be at the next few rounds of course we all know sacramento is rained out this weekend and that 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 rains out lodi i shouldn't say rained out because it's postponed we are going to reschedule and that's going to be august the 9th will be the lodi short track august the 10th is the sacramento mile then august the 11th is the amateur sacramento mile so this race is not canceled it's just postponed make sure you say that don't want you don't want you to get yelled at I don't want to get yelled at. I, I mean, I've been known to make a few mistakes, but I should know better. It hasn't been canceled. It has been postponed. I did hear Gobert smash a lot in uh, this week's race. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Twins. Let's talk about those twins, man. B-Rob. First two-time winner of the season. He yeah. won the Atlanta short track, and he backs it up here with the Paris you know, half mile, a little bit bigger version of Atlanta. And, uh, man, he was fast all day. Yeah, I mean, what, Janish won two in the singles, but he's the first Twins uh, rider to repeat. It's good to see him getting that win. He was super stoked. I, I mean, couldn't you see his how ex- excited he was taking that checkered flag? Awesome to see the whole Kennedy Racing team. Good to see them getting these two wins early in the season. You know, we haven't even hit the miles yet, so I can't wait to see what that bike does in the miles. So Yeah, they've got to be super excited about the miles. I think Robinson's a little bit taller, but Robinson's won on the miles before he's run Springfield. And, uh, man, he's a, he's a very talented rider. Now he's on the Indians, the same equipment as everybody else. And, you know, the season's unfolding you know, I like the way it's happening right now. Robinson working his way up there, but you still got to, you know, hats off to Briar Bauman. He is, you know, sitting, leading the points. He finished second 
his worst finish so far is a third. So if he can finish on the podium every week, what you know Meese normally does, that's what Briar Bauman's doing now. And I can't believe I'm about to say this next thing, but you can't count out the Harleys after last Ooh, weekend. Man, with if we wouldn't have had that red flag, Carter, you know, Wiles went down in three and four. We couldn't hardly see him. He's up against the air fence, but they brought out the red flag because uh, some of the guys were going off the groove. We didn't want to. You know, we didn't want Wiles to get hurt or ran over or anything like that. But Sammy's lap times were actually faster than Miranda Robinson. Yeah. I don't know if he could have passed him, but he was up there with him. So we have the red flag. Sammy gets a terrible start, works his way back, still gets the podium finish right there. And, you know, like I said, if we didn't have the red flag, you never know. Well, when you got a rider like Sammy, too, it doesn't matter if he could have passed him. He would have passed him, right? He's not afraid to get in there and bump elbows and, and go bar to bar with somebody. Um, that would have been a hell of a finish, I think, to see if he would have caught him. But, dude, the Harleys are sitting fourth and fifth in points right now. Did you Do you they ever did. expect that going into the season? Not really. They've, yeah. they've, made, they've made some drastic improvements on the offseason. I talked to Terry Vance a couple different times this last weekend. He said they're still not happy. I don't think they're going to be happy until they win a race, which they're getting closer. Yeah. I don't know that he realized that they were fourth and fifth in the points, and they were actually third and fourth in the main event. So wow. they're making strides, and they're in Vance and Hines' backyard. Terry Vance was excited about that, but they want to win a race. So uh, you can tell Sammy's riding really hard, and, and Vandekoy all always rides hard. Yeah. Uh- you know what I was most impressed with? Uh, you know, the Cali boy, Monaco. He was up there in the front in a couple of races. And um, so he got to start on the front row of yeah. the main event for the very first time oh, ever. Oh, oh. So yeah, you, I, you I got think, a nickname. I, I think I got something for him. I don't know if it's going to stick. You know, I always call him the son of an almond farmer. And his dad really gets a kick out of that. But uh, how about front row, Monaco? Front row, Monaco. I love it. Is this the first time you're dropping that new nickname? I'm dropping it right here. I think I've told a few different people off, you know, offline. I didn't. I told nobody to tell James because I wanted to leave for a surprise for him for our podcast. He's gonna have to make new stickers and T-shirts though. Oh, I don't know about that. He's making some new ones right now. I I, I like what he's got going on. Front but row Monica. Front row Monica. Yeah. I love it. Front row Monica. Right. I, and you know, and, I do love the son of an almond farmer, but you know, front row Monica uh, is the new one. I love it. All right. I like it. So the other big surprise to me, which I shouldn't be surprised because he's been doing it week in and week out, the uh, the rookie of the year leader, Brandon Price, B. Price running up front. He finished seventh, and you know what? I I just really didn't expect that from him, and he is he's he's consistently running top ten, and uh, so he's the real deal. Yeah, BP ninety two, hell of a run, man, and on a track that he would probably say is less than mint. Because I don't know, it was it wasn't in perfect condition, uh, but I I can't believe how well he's running his rookie year on the on that twin. You know, Jerry Stinchfield's got to be pretty excited about his new rider on on the roof systems team uh, in the twins class. You know, coming in that strong as a rookie is pretty impressive. Absolutely. So the two biggest surprises, I guess, um, maybe not in the positive way, but Jared Meese with a fifth place finish. He made drastic improvements in the main event, and then Jeffrey Carver, who finished second last time we were there. A 12th place finish for him so those are my two biggest upset surprises but uh you know all in all a good race weekend in paris yeah it's uh it's always good to go back to paris i hope i don't know if you know if that's on the schedule for next year or not but i i think the riders like going out there right it seems like a pretty everybody seems happy out there well it's it's we're in motorcycle industries backyard i yeah. know a lot of the you know the american base camps for a lot of the industry like Vance and Hines and you know several other manufacturers are right there close by so I hope we can keep going back I know the VIP area was completely full a lot of uh, 
big time people from different manufacturers were there and uh it's pretty cool yeah so this is normally the part where we talk about this weekend's race in sacramento but as you mentioned you know the threat of rain is uh is, is causing that to be postponed until august so um we'll save we'll save the uh the look ahead to the next weekend till springfield which can you believe we're already at springfield i cannot i i mean it seems like it was dragging on, dragging on, and now it seems like we're in fast, you know, high gear. Yeah. And we're already at Springfield, which is, you know, the mecca of the miles, and it's, uh, the, you know, the fastest dirt oval in the world and, and all that stuff, and it never, ever disappoints. But I cannot believe it's time for Springfield next weekend. Yeah, and it's always good to have that week off to catch your breath when you have a couple back-to-back. But, uh, you know, I, you and I will probably love to watch flat track racing every weekend, as, as I'm sure everybody that's listening to this feels the same. But uh, we'll take the week. We'll take, catch our breaths and uh, hit it hard with the Springfield Mile next weekend. I'm pretty stoked about that. Absolutely. We got a great guest for us lined up. He's actually a guy that helps me out. I have, I have flat track trivia questions. I have, you know, help. He helps me out several different ways throughout the week. And then every once in a while during the race, he'll text me if I'm missing something or if I say something incorrectly. And he fixes what I uh, what I make a mistake here and there, but uh, you I don't make mistakes. Guy. You don't make okay. mistakes. Well, I was just I, you know nobody's perfect except my mom, and and uh, she's not an announcer. So. <laughs> really looking forward to this one. This guy I, I don't know a ton about. I've chatted with him online a time or two. Like you said, a, a, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to flat track. Um, this guy, I mean, he's like he's like a walking, talking encyclopedia of flat track knowledge. Um, and he's got a few other friends that help him out, but you know he. He has a passion for the sport, so it's pretty cool to have him on to hear his story. And, you know, there's a lot of people that do know who he is for a lot of different ways. Um, but there's some people that might not know his name or, or know who he is. So, it, you know, that's one of the biggest things I love doing on this podcast is giving those people a voice and a platform to tell their story. So I'm um, looking forward to this one for sure. It is my buddy, Bert Sumner. Let's give him a call. Dialing him up. He's got that Wisconsin area code. Wisconsin cheese it's still daylight at your house is it not daylight there i'm not telling you where i'm at oh yeah it's a secret so low key all right it's, low key? Di- it's dialing yeah you're low key hello is, is this the flat track guru himself, Mr. Burt Sumner? It could possibly be. If that's what you want me to be, that's what I'll be. Well, How are you, Scotty? You, I'm great, man. You know more about flat track than anybody I've ever met, so that's what I'm going to call you. How's that? That's fine. You should meet more people. There's a lot of a lot of people out there that know a lot. <laughs> well, you're you're the you're one of the very few that will send me information even on race day if I if I mess up or if I have a question. Even if I'm broadcasting a race, you will send me an answer. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Somehow you always know when I'm going to text you because you always text me right back. Well, and, and you know, to, to be honest, I there are rare, rare times where I've uh, heard you really make a mistake. Uh, I think you do a fantastic job. Um, and I, having been an announcer myself, I know there are lots of times where I start a thought and then the gears lock up or you get distracted and you go, dang, I wish I had time to – you know, kind of pull away and look up that information or just think for a second. But as, as you know, when you're announcing, man, you're just firing and firing and firing. And so I try to, you know, I, I've been in your shoes and I know what that's like. And so, you know, when I hear you kind of stumble a bit where you think of something like, well, here, I'll throw him something and he can kind of, you know, cause I know what, when I think of them, I'm like, now who, 
who did win that race on that thing or what did this and then it'll just bug me all night long so i try to you know try to help you out if i can and if you use it great if not no you know that's fine too but i i suspect you'd probably seem to go now who was that and what did that exactly yeah you know, no, so, I, so I, know, I appreciate you giving me shout out, but man, I'm just doing it to help you. I'm, I'm doing it to help you do, you know, help you look better and help you do your job as, uh, as well as possible. Well, I don't know if I look any better. I mean, my dad said I have a face for radio, so I think my looks are as good as I get. <laughs> well, you know, everyone's a critic. You know, I mentioned the other day that, you know, you watch these guys that do the NFL and the major league baseball and basketball, and they've got laptops up where they've got people feeding them information People watch, you know, Troy Aikman and them go, wow, he was able to pull all those stats out of the air. It's like, nah, he's got nah. some, yeah. some interns feeding him all that information. But I, I imagine you and Brad are just sitting up there with a microphone and your phone, and that's probably it. So, well, you know, I, yeah. I think the stuff that you guys are able to do is uh, I, I don't think anyone appreciates how difficult it is to do what you do. Well, actually, you know, most of it is I have a, a pretty good notebook with, you know, like the past year's results, or maybe if I go to a particular track we've been to a lot, I'll keep the results from that track, but the rest of it's all in my head and whatever you text yeah. me. But, you know, whenever I did the X Games, there's somebody sitting beside the host announcer handing him note cards, and there's somebody sitting beside me, I was a color commentator, handing me note cards on different things, like even say the age of Jake Johnson and he's married and has one kid. I mean, as little notes as yeah. that may be, or how relevant that may be, people are doing that. But at the grand nationals, sure. you know, like you said, just Brad Baker and myself sitting up usually in a secluded place. Usually nobody can get to where we're at. And uh, right. we just live, we just live with what we got and the knowledge in our back pocket and, and whatever, whoever helps us. So definitely all the help that you've given me throughout the years is, is much appreciated. And, and I do try to, you know, give you the credit where, you know, where it's due, because that's how I feel, you know, you, you've earned it. You've kept the notes better than I have. And, and man, you know, some of the times, like, like you said, I get kind of hung up on stuff and you definitely help me out and save me, save me and make me look even smarter than I really am. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's my pleasure that you give me the opportunity to, you know, chime in every once in a while. There's some races where I'm, you know, thinking of all kinds of stuff and sending a message. I'm like, one of these minutes he's going to spend back and just go, leave me alone. I'm busy working. But, you know, you know, yeah. it's got to be nice having, having Brad in the booth with you. Whereas, you know, the last couple of years you were flying solo that if you, mm-hmm. you know, if you need a minute to compose your thoughts, you can go, Hey Brad, what do you think about blank? And let him, you yeah. know, run with it. Whereas when, as you know, when you're doing it by yourself, dead air is bad air. And man, you got to fill all that space with, you know, stuff as, as well as you can, but I think, I think you do a hell of a job. So I'm, I'm tickled to death to be able to be associated with you any which way I can. Well, I certainly appreciate it. And, and we've been friends a long time and, and uh, I certainly appreciate all the information you got. So let's, let's just dive in. Let's get to know Bert Sumner a little bit. And then we're going to talk about all your stats and everything and where you keep them and all that stuff. But uh, let's go mm-hmm. back to the beginning. So you were born in Wisconsin. Is that where you still live? Yep. I, with the exception of uh, a couple of years spent in the military, I've uh, lived in Wisconsin my whole life. So yeah, born and raised in Milwaukee, um, lived here my whole life. Just now I live uh, about 30 minutes north of Milwaukee. Okay. Um, been here for 25 years. How'd you get involved in motorcycles? My father began racing motorcycles in 1966 when he was 27 years old. Um, kids, uh, us four kids all came along in 66, 67, 68, and 70. Uh, so naturally when you have, uh, you know, four kids, what do you do? You get your novice license. And that's what my dad did in 71. 
when he was 31 years old or 32, 31 or 32, which was, and I think 71 was the year they lowered the uh, novice age down to 16. So he was twice as old as, you know, people he was racing against. And he raced pro from 71 until 93 or 94, something like that. He was a novice until 83. Middle of 83, he got a junior license. My brother and I started racing in 79. My sister joined us in 80. You know, by that point, uh, we were all out kind of helping running the local racetrack, you know, doing whatever we could, flagging corners or helping put up banners and do the, the, you know, whatever a 11 or 12-year-old can do. When I was 12, I started announcing races. And uh, then the older we got, the more responsibilities we got until we were doing kind of track prep and doing, you know, I've done every, my family and I, my sisters and I, we've done every job you could possibly do at a racetrack from track prep, hanging banners, scoring, staging, registration, flagging, uh, announcing, referee, and the whole nine yards. We've just, uh, we've been around it forever and we've done, and we like to think we've done everything you can do with the race. So we've, we've seen a lot, uh, seen a lot of other people put on races and we try to use the things that work for other people and we try to avoid the things that didn't work and that's how i think we've been able to be successful promoters for the last 20 years what uh, what's your first memory of going to a racetrack my first memory of being at a racetrack is being on the back of my dad's sprint as he was uh giving us a ride around the pit area at uh some half mile somewhere i can't i can still see the vision in in my head because i can i remember the back of my dad's orange and white leathers and the smell of the leathers and uh it was at a grassy infield yeah, it might have been like pecatonica half mile or something like that i don't remember the track but that's my earliest earliest memories i uh, i'm sure that i was at racetracks sooner than that and uh you know we grew up in milwaukee which is two hours from chicago so Every summer, every Wednesday night, we would go down to Santa Fe Speedway and watch the short track races there from April until September or whatever it was. And so the, you know, we we were blessed to be able to grow up watching, you know, Terry Poovey and Steve Elo and uh, Scott Pearson and Randy Goss and Alex Jorgensen and and guys like that. Steve Eklund, you know, race every weekend, and we just thought that was normal, you know, to see guys, you know, sit in. 80 and 81, you know, we watched Steve Eklund every Wednesday with a number one plate. And the next year we saw Randy Goss every weekend with a, or every week with a number one plate. And we just thought that was normal. It's just Man. normal to see the national champion at the short track every Wednesday. At, but, at, uh, at your local race. That'd be so cool. I mean, I, yeah, I grew up and I didn't get to see hardly any of the stars because they're always gone racing. You know, there wasn't much racing around where I grew up. So I had to travel to go watch stuff like that. How, how long did you race yourself? I started racing in 79. I got uh, my pro novice license in 85, uh, which in our family, when you turn 16, you turn pro because you could. Uh, and back then, back then, you know, the pro racing, those were the good racetracks. You know, the, the local racing up here in Wisconsin at the time was more or less, I, I call it uh, motocross in a circle. <laughs> that when we started racing flat track, we started racing flat track. Guy, uh, guys were running knobby tires in every class. They were running motocross bikes, motocross plates, motocross everything. Uh, except except uh, Steve Champagne was the one guy who had leathers. He had a full face helmet. He had a steel shoe. He had uh, 10 by 12 number plates. That guy was like, he was the man for us. He he 
you know, growing up, you know, the first time we saw him unload, you know, amongst all these motocross bikes and he looked the part and he's got an entire family. He's got a whole bunch of fast brothers and, and, you know, the, the whole champagne family is great, but, but, uh, Steve champagne was like, wow, that guy, he looks like, you know, he looked like Myrtle Lawwell. And, uh, but, uh, you know, you, you got to turn pro and you got to run at the half miles, which were, you know, smoother racetracks and you could go to Santa Fe and run there and then eventually run the nationals. So that was the big impetus to turn pro. So in 85, I turned pro. That was the last year of the novice division. So I could hang my hat on that and got my junior license in 86, got my expert license in 89. And then in 91, at the end of the year, I uh, decided that uh, that was enough of that. I went to, I remember going, I was at a half or a short track, a regional short track at Fremont, Ohio, and uh, was watching the guys around me, the juniors around me were all adjusting this, adjusting that, and changing the wheelbase and doing this and doing that, and I was just putting gas in the bike and going having a good time and realized that not not going to be very successful. I, I just didn't have the attitude, you know, especially in the expert division, to uh, be successful, and it just wasn't that fun anymore. Uh, by that point, my brother had his national number, and uh, I was in college at the time for engineering and decided, you know, this engineering thing is going to work out a hell of a lot better than this racing deal ever did. So in 91, I, the last race I went to, I blew up my Honda 600 and that was kind of God's way of saying, yep, you've made the right choice. <laughs> By August of 91, I blew up the Honda and got rid of it and kind of got rid of everything. And that was that. Wow, I, I guess I never knew that about you. I didn't know why you stopped racing. It's interesting. And, of course, your brother went on to race several more years. And did you travel a lot with your brother after you stopped racing? I would travel with him every once in a while, uh, not all that often. He, when he got his Pro-Am license, which is what the novice division came to, uh, he got that in 86, and he hooked up with Stan Millard, who was the guy that built the BSA that I rode as a novice. My brothers rode that and started winning on it, and I couldn't. I didn't win anything on it when I rode it, and so I had a bit of a inferiority complex for about 25 years. About man, I just couldn't get out of my own way on that BSA. But my brother got on it, and he was able to win everything. And like 25 years later, mentioned that to Stan, and he goes, "Oh, that was a completely different bike. I saw how badly you were struggling. And I, had to, I knew I had to do something different." And I was like, "Well, man, that would have been good to know 25 years ago." Uh, that's yeah, awesome. so so Jim and Stan hooked up and did great things together, and they kind of travel all over. And then in 90, 91, when Jim got his national number, that was where that was the last year. I was like, all right, so I bought a van, and he and I traveled around a bit that year, and um, and the grind just got to me. And you know, we'd go to a race, and he'd make the main, and I wouldn't, and you know, it made for some you know difficult drives home. But uh, you know, he just continued to get better and better and better, and then you know, he got the once I graduated college, we decided to buy an XR motor together, so we bought that, and um, and he was able. By that point, he'd been he'd already made a couple of Grand Nationals on a on an XR, so um, yeah, so it was best to focus the energies on on him because uh, he had the talent and I did not. So <clears throat> so that's how that went. Yeah, that's awesome. So a lot of people know you for a lot of different reasons, you know. Uh, you know, some people up north would know you as a race promoter. You run a lot of races, but the the biggest one that you're known for that everybody knows about is the Dairyland Classic, which is coming up in just a few weeks, May 31st. So, yep. how did the the Dairyland Classic get started? Because it's been going for 35 years in a row. So, how did that race in particular get started? My parents 
were had been helping out the Atlant Cycle Club here in Wisconsin for many many years, and uh, they had a short track and a motocross. And in '83 or '84, Dad decided, no, we should we should get some more races because I think by that point, a couple of the local promoters uh, had started to get out of promoting. Uh, you know, so us kids started racing in '79, and for 1980, my dad decided to. Uh, become the district referee or the district director, whatever you want to call it, to kind of drive or steer the, uh, the local flat track racing. And one of the first things he did after a year was to uh, get rid of the knobby tires on the big bikes, uh, which obviously helped the tracks be a whole lot nicer, which, you know, eventually 10, 15 years later, we had seven or eight local guys were aiming national numbers, which was really cool. Um, but in 84, Ian and mom decided that, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of half miles here in the state that needs some attention. Let's, let's go put on some races there. So they, they started putting races on at, uh, a little short track, not far from where I live now that, uh, went belly up pretty much the end of that year when the locals decided they didn't like all the bike noise. Um, they started running races up at, uh, Manitowoc at the county fairgrounds up there and they started running races in 85 at uh, Plymouth, Wisconsin at the Sheboygan County Fair Park. And we've been there every year since then. And that's been kind of the, it's really turned into a really nice, uh, nice event. We're teamed up with Road America. Uh, we've always run on the Friday night of their uh, AMA Superbike Weekend or Moto America Superbike Weekend. And we have a real nice relationship with them where we do a shuttle bus now where we pick up people at gate four over at road America and drive them over to the, our fair park. And then we drive them back at the end of the night so they can come and they don't have to worry about parking or traffic or anything like that. Um, and so that was how the race started in 85. Uh, they tried to run a grand national in 99, uh, that got rained out. Uh, they ran a, in a hot shoe race in 2000. And, uh, then for 2001, they were frustrated. The group that was, my parents and the group that were financing it were very uh, unhappy with the way the AMA was. And in 1999, Mike Kidd had started running his uh, Pace flat track series. And in 2000, it was the Wrenchhead series. And uh, Jim and I had gone down in 2000 to the Indy Mile that he ran down there. And uh, he did a number of things that I thought were really clever. And there were a couple of things I thought weren't quite so, uh, uh, so good. And uh, this was during the, the, the internet had kind of just started to take off and Wayne Hosaka's uh, flat track page was doing really well. And my kid had been on there a few times talking about the series that he was starting up. And so after the Indy race, I'd sent him a personal message. Hey, you know, I'm nobody, you know, but you know, I went to the, went to the Indy mile and here's some things that I, you know, I thought you did really, really well. And here's some things I thought, you know, uh, didn't go so well. And to my surprise, he wrote back, thanked me for my comments. And we started kind of having a dialogue. And uh, so when my folks were trying to figure out what to do for 2001, I thought, well, if you're upset with the AMA, why don't we, you know, talk to Mike Kidd about joining his, uh, what would eventually become the Formula USA series. And so uh, he said, well, you know, my, now my dad bleeds AMA. You know, he's been a, he was an AMA congressman for 30 some years. Um, he was never a big fan of outlaw racing, so he didn't want to contact my kid, but I figured, well, here's an opportunity. So I reached out to Mike and we kept the dialogue going and 
you know, the thing I told him is, hey, you know, we'd like to have a, an event on your new series, but here's the deal. If we do it, you know, we want to be in charge of track prep because we got guys that know how to do our track together. And when the AMA came up to the Grand National, they decided they were going to do things their way and it just turned into a mess. And, uh, you know, luckily or unluckily, it rained out. So I started this dialogue and got all the kind of the inter- the, the information from my kid and then presented that to the group, said, here's what I think you should do. I think you should sanction an event with Former USA and go that way. And they all said, great, that sounds good. And then they all stood up from the meeting and left. And I said, well, okay, who's going to be the point man? Who's going to, you know, I've got my kid's information. Who's going to contact them? And the head guy turned to me and said, well, you've been talking to him. Why don't you just keep doing it? And that <laughs> is how I became a promoter. <laughs> was was never my intention to become a promoter, but here I had kind of made a verbal commitment to my kid that, hey, we've got a great group here, and suddenly nobody wanted to do the work but me. So, or, you know, I expected I was just going to hand it off, and that didn't happen. And so I ended up, out of fear, taking on the responsibility of, uh, of promoting the event. Luckily, I didn't have to pay for it. The other group were more than willing to pay for it, but uh, as far as doing all the all the legwork and everything, that's how I ended up promoting the 2001 Dairyland Classic was by happenstance. Wow. Okay. Everybody else got up and left, so it leaves you. Yep. I love it. That's right. It's like, yeah. it's like like in the military when you're all standing in the line and everyone takes a step back. If you don't take a step back, you're the one. <laughs> you're it. Lucky day. You're it. Right. So right. So not only not only the Dairyland Classic, but you do some other races as well. Mostly of those are most of those are geared towards the amateurs. Am I right? Yeah, we're doing a second event the week after the Dairyland Classic. We've got uh, an opportunity to do an event down in Darlington, which is down near Dubuque, Iowa. It's in the southwest corner of the state of Wisconsin. And they've, for 53 years, Darlington has done this canoe fest celebration where they, it started out doing uh, canoe races on the, I think it's the Pecatonica River right there. And uh, it has evolved over the, over the past 53, 54 years. And it's a whole big week long celebration. It starts like Wednesday and goes to Saturday. And, uh, Part of that deal is Saturday afternoon, the uh, local uh, motorcycle group down there, the Beowulf group, uh, puts on their summer party where they have live bands and they have, you know, all these free beer, free soda, free this, free that, you know, a whole bunch of stuff going on. It's just a big party, right? Like, like I remember we used to go up to uh, uh, the, the Marathon County uh, fairgrounds up in Wausau. They used to do a two-day event up there over the 4th of July weekend, and it was always free to the public. And that was a deal where you go race a half mile on Saturday and then just, and then the adults, not the kids, but the adults would just have this all out party at the fairgrounds there and then try to go racing again Sunday afternoon. And I think this could be kind of a, a callback to that where, you know, these people are really eager to see some motorcycle racing. They've never seen it on their track before. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a motorcycle group, you know, the, the Beowulfs and they're excited to see you know, all kinds of flat track, uh, motorcycles. And, um, we had a couple of guys, we tried to run it last year and it rained out. We had a couple of guys that stayed for the party and, you know, they, they just told me afterwards how great it was. They ended up unloading the bikes and showing the bikes to the people. And, you know, they just, they just said it was really, really cool to have all these people just very, very eager to see, you know, see motorcycles, even though they weren't racing, they were able to see the bikes and they were pretty thrilled with what they saw. And so we're, we're hoping that that's going to be an awesome event uh, Saturday afternoon. We start racing at 3 o'clock on June the 8th down at the Lafayette County Speedway. 
And then as soon as the races are over, the uh, Beowulf summer party will be in full swing, you know, 50 feet to the to the south there at the fairgrounds. And, you know, we think that'll be a golden opportunity for some of our racer people to have kind of a social outing that we typically don't have. You know, when we started racing way back when, there were only eight classes that we would run up here. And so the day would be over by three o'clock and everyone would sit up at the at the beer tent and have a couple of beers before they, you know, went home. So it was a very social kind of a thing. And they don't see that as much at the, at the races anymore. It seems like that there's, there's, first of all, there's a lot more classes. So the day takes longer, but it seems like that once, once you're done with your race, you load up, you grab your trophy, you go home. And uh, it's really, it doesn't seem to be quite the, the social component that there used to be, but maybe that's just me being a cranky old man and uh, yelling at the kids to get off my lawn. I know I like it. You know, it's at the Grand Nationals now. It seems like we have an hour period where people can go to the pits. But what I try to remind people is that you can go to the pits free of charge after the race as well. And, you know, I think the racers should stay after the race is just as important as it is during the, you know, the hour break. Because, you know, that's how we build these the next stars, you know, the next stars of tomorrow. People have to meet these riders and get to know their personality, know what makes these riders tick. And that's another reason we do this off the group podcast is. I want people to, to relate to these riders and other people involved in our sport. So I love what you're doing. A lot of people don't actually realize, and some people may know this, but you're actually the referee for the Flat Out Friday events and, and mostly the ones in Milwaukee. But how did you get involved with the people up there at Flat Out Friday? Jeremy Pratt came to me. At, we were running a race up at Sturgeon Bay at the Door County Fair, uh, which we're running there August 3rd this year, by the way. And he came to me and said, hey, I'm thinking of putting on a race. I said, oh, good for you. And he goes, I'm thinking of doing it at the uh, UWM Panther Arena. And I said, oh, you probably don't want to do that. That was tried 25, 30 years ago, and it didn't work. And um, we talked for a bit, and he told me kind of what his, you know, what his plan was. And, you know, the main advice I told him is, well, here's my advice. Don't spend more than you can afford to lose. I said, if you do that, you'll probably be okay. You know, uh, you know, you're kind of going into uncharted territory here. You know, there hasn't been an indoor really in Milwaukee since, and I rode one there in 90. I think it was 90 or 91. Um, but he went into it, and he he found a bunch of, uh, you know, he found a group of sponsors to help uh, help get the word out, as well as you know, hopefully help pay for the event. And he's done six of them, I think. Now I lost track already. Uh, but he, when it came down to brass tacks of uh, of getting her done, he contacted uh, my family to to help him run the, the the logistics of the event. And and really, you know, the as far as being a being a, an event promoter, you know, there's a lot of people that complain about promoters or you know this or that. As, as I just explained in my story, I didn't ever plan on being an event promoter. It just kind of happened. And to me, the hardest part of being a promoter is finding people that you can trust to execute your vision and you know that's finding a good announcer that can you know talk to a crowd in the event of a of a downtime you know find people that can uh run the starting line and run the staging area run the corners where you don't have to babysit them you know they all understand what you're doing and that takes time step one is finding good people and then once once you have good people on board, and we've got a, I mean, we've got a fantastic crew with our Dairyland Racing Group with Scott Mack and Chris Baker and Sally Ward and Jamie Duranco and Roy Howard and Tom Yankee and Mike Brana and these guys are, you know, if if I didn't have them, we wouldn't be putting on races because I'm able to focus on kind of the thirty thousand foot level and 
just let them do what they do. And, uh, you know, early on, it was a lot of micromanagement on my end, trying to make sure I was putting the right people in the right spots and trying to make sure that things were running the way that I wanted them to run because it was, you know, everyone was looking at me and if it was going to fail, it was going to, it was going to be my failure. And I have a huge fear of failure. So I, I didn't want that to happen. And the biggest part as I, as I mentioned was, if you can find a group of people that know what they're doing, then you don't have to micromanage them. You can have faith that they're going to do their job. And I think for, for Jeremy, I think he looked around the state and said, well, this family does it. I mean, we've put on races in Texas and Illinois and Iowa and, you know, all over the place. And, and it's because we've been around it. You know, we were, we were doing staging when we were 12, we were doing starting when we were, you know, 15, 16. So he, he asked us to help out and, you know, uh, he's started to bring in some of his own people to do certain things. Um, but I think it's, uh, he knows what he wants and he knows what he's doing. Um, you know, I don't think that he necessarily needs us, but I think it's a good safety net. I know that I, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Um, uh, there's a lot of coordination, you know, with, uh, as you were aware that, uh, that was part of the Harley Davidson 115th celebration and Harley Davidson has been doing a lot of, uh, getting them out on Facebook with live feeds and kind of showing the event uh, live. And I believe it was just on ABC television, uh, the spring race, they showed that on like a two week tape delay or something like that. So he's getting some huge, uh, huge exposure from it, which is great because he, he puts in a heck of a lot of work and uh, anyone that has tried to put on a race knows that, it takes a it takes a lot of work, probably not as much as you think, but it takes it takes a lot of time is the big thing, and uh, so um, you know so he asked me to be the referee for him, and that allows him to kind of it allows him to let me look over or you know command and control the event to make sure that things are running smoothly so that he can jump on whatever live grenade rolls into the room, um, because that way if something flares up, he knows that he can. He can, uh, you know, take that exit, go take care of that issue, and everything doesn't just come to a stop. Um, and so it's it's uh, it's been amazing to see the meteoric rise of this event. And he he was uh, named the AMA Promoter of the Year last year by the AMA, so that was very cool for him. Absolutely, so that's what we do I, I agree with it. Friday. Yeah, I, I like what he's doing. I, and you know, he really tries to focus on the amateur riders and the entertainment. And, you know, some promoters get away from the entertainment value. And, and I think, I think, you know, he's got a good thing going. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that people know you for a lot of different reasons. We've covered a few different ones. The last one I think is the most important to me, obviously, is the, you know, your flat track stats. And, and people can find some stats in the history of the, of the sport on your website, dairylandclassic.com, and, and learn more about your events. But it's a database for anything and everything you want to know about flat track. And I'd like to know... Why did you start this website and what inspired you to become the stats guru that you are? The internet actually is what, uh, what led to it. Uh, in the early days of the internet, uh, Wayne Hosaka, as I mentioned earlier, um, started up this page called the flat track page. And it was basically a, a forum that allowed people to, you know, go similar to like Facebook is now, right? You, post a question or a comment and then other people can comment on that and, and blah, blah, blah. And he also kind of ran it and he also did run a chat room 
which was like every Monday night at 9 p.m. Central or 10 p.m. Central or something like that. And you get some, you know, so a bunch of people like myself and my brother. And you know, I remember Will Davis was on there a couple of times and Rich King would be on there and a bunch of other other people who maybe you didn't know yet, but you would soon learn who they were. And you just talk about racing memories and stuff like that. And what what I noticed was that there was a lot of people claiming to be people that they weren't or claiming to have been, you know, a big thing was, was, uh, well, I was national number you know, 29 back in the whatever. And you go, really? That was, you know, I don't remember your name attached to that number ever, but there wasn't ever, there wasn't a, uh, anywhere where you could double check all that information. Uh, Don LaRue now has the AMA national number list that you can go to and look, but and that's what kind of led me to trying to document as much of the history as possible because you'd hear stuff and hear things and it and it was it was pretty much he said she said you know someone would go oh Ricky Graham won the Houston TT on a Rotax and I'd go no he won it on an XR no you're wrong actually I'm right no you're wrong and that's you know <laughs> you get into this pissing contest with people and only find out later that they don't know what they're saying anyway and so I just started. You know, once I once I created the website, um, like boy, I should probably do more than that. And I think what started it actually was um, that I think the first web page, first web page that I started was with the help of Chuck Vincent and the Vincent family. They had run GrandNationalChampion.com at the time, and they helped me set up my first website, which was strictly for my event, just for the Dairyland Classic. And then when my brother passed. Um, I we I had been think had been thinking of putting together like a memorial page for the riders who had passed on that we had remembered from our youth. Um, you know, David Jones is the first one to come to mind. Steve Dalfield is another one. Mike Eskew was a local guy from here. Um, by that point, David Camlin had been passed. Uh, Andy Tresser had passed, and he had spent time at our house uh, while I was in the military, and Rodney Ferris, and so on and so forth. And when my brother passed, that was kind of the the impetus of, oh, I should really document this because there were there were a number of flat track memorial pages that were just a list of names, and it didn't really it didn't tell you anything about them. Uh, it was just a list of names, and it also didn't differentiate. You know, did this guy die young? Did this guy die in a racing accident, or was it just he's an old guy that is now passed on? Um, which I agree there's a place for that, but I felt that the, and perhaps selfishly so, I felt that the racers who had passed while competing, that was a special category, uh, not a very pleasant category, but I felt those riders deserve to have a better story told than merely having their name on a black and white webpage, you know, in addition to you know, dozens of other names. And so when my brother passed, I decided to put together the flat track memorial page where I put up the name, their, their plate number, where the accident happened, how old they were, where they lived. I try to put a little bit of a brief bio on there. Uh, I try not to be overly graphic because that would be sensationalizing it. But I realized that I feel you have to put enough information in there because people are going to want to know what happened. You know, oh, this person passed away, but what happened? You know, how did they pass away? How did how did the accident happen? Where did it happen? So on and so forth. Um, a good example is uh, Billy Huber. 
there were differing opinions. He passed away, if you didn't know, at the 300-mile Dodge City, Kansas race in 1953. And there was differing accounts of did he have heat stroke or did he just crash or did it was, was it this, was it that? And did some digging with my history amigos who uh, – uh, Bob Herrick in Michigan and Greg Pearson in West Virginia, who dug up some of the research and found that uh, uh, the cause of death was a heat stroke that he had while racing. And so I was able to document that in there and put some pictures in there. And uh, that has been a very, uh, it, it's been very heartwarming because I've gotten some, uh, some very uh, blessed responses from some people. I remember Steve Dallafeld's uh, ex-girlfriend sent me a message saying, oh, I dated Steve, you know, we broke up, you know, early this, you know, in the spring of 1980, I think she said, and we lost touch and I had heard through the grapevine that he had passed, but I never knew anything about it. And I was able to find on your website that, uh, you know, what happened to him. Um, you know, I, I've gotten a, a number of, uh, uh, other comments from family members. I've, gotten a few comments from people who said that, you know, my, you, you have my father on your webpage. You know, I was just a, a young boy when he passed, I didn't know anything about him. So that's great. Um, you know, those, those kind of, of comments are, are so heartwarming that you're providing some measure of closure for these people that maybe didn't know, especially the young people, you know, the young people whose parents or, or whose, uh, father passed away when they were, you know, just young children and they didn't, you know, that that's a, a heart wrenching story, but to give them an opportunity to see, Oh, there's my dad, you know, there's a picture of my dad racing and here's some uh, comments that other people have shared where, Oh, you know, Benny was a great guy or Albert was, you know, super fast and these kind of things. Um, so I try to put a more human face on, on each of the bios uh, because I, I don't want it to be just a list of names. Anybody can put a list of names together, but you know, these are people and some, some of them were national champions. Some of them were, you know, just first time novices. Um, but each, each one of them has a story to be told. And so that's what, that was the first history webpage. And once that one got going and got really positive response from people, uh, then I just, being OCD, I just took it to the next level of, uh, I was bored one day and had the 2000 AMA media guide where they listed every national win for every racer since 1930 something. And I went, Hmm, I should put this into a database and then I can sort it and filter it and do all that. And so I entered all that information into a spreadsheet and then went, well, how can I make this better? Well, it listed the you know, listed the name and the location and the date and the type of bike, but Hey, I should figure out what bike number they were running. So I went through with my history amigos and documented everyone's bike number and plate number and found out the, uh, the model that each winner was on, you know, so it's a BSA. Well, is that a, was that the a 65 or was it the B50, you know, was it a gold star? Was it a twin? Was it a triple? Was it this? Was it that? So I went through and tracked all that down and then it was, okay, what can I do next? And thought, uh, you know, no one's ever tracked down all of the tuners at grand national history. That would be a cool little project. So I started, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, the internet and Facebook had gotten to the point to where, uh, I didn't have to make a lot of phone calls because I've gotten more and more sociopathic as I get older and 
don't like talking to people as much as I used to. <laughs> so I was able to send emails to people or messages to people. And um, Bill Milburn out of Texas has been a godsend to me because he's really taken me under his wing and shown me, I think he saw in me uh, a true desire for historical accuracy. And he has been a great connection and a great friend for many years. And uh, he has gotten me in touch with people. I think of the 1,200 and some Grand Nationals since 1954, I think I have the tuner identified for all but like 78. And most of those are road races, which most people didn't know who was building the road races back then. And most of the others are deceased people who I can't, uh, I don't have any confidence in the information I could get. But of the 1,200 and, or of the 12, you know, 1,200 and whatever it is, 40, Grand National events, I think we've had, I think, you know, to get all but 78 of them, um, I think that's a hell of an accomplishment. I'm just really pleased. And I've been able to meet some of these great tuners and uh, to have them come up to me and express their appreciation um, for what I put together. That is really humbling to, to uh, yeah, it's just, it's really cool. I'm the, the Lord has blessed me with some pretty, pretty, spectacular opportunities in my life and uh it's just been really really special and uh you know i've told i've told a few people that you know if you find something you're passionate about boy follow it because you never know where you might end up and uh you know for a guy for a guy that just started you know he kind of got roped into being a promoter and then he got kind of roped in there i think i'll just do a web page and then it became two web pages and now i think i've got you know, 15 or 20 different web pages on there that cover all kinds of stuff. And there's always more to document. Um, but to have the appreciation of people that I admire, uh, who, who lived, lived the life. And, uh, you know, that, that's pretty cool to try to give some of these people, um, a little bit more, uh, appreciation and at least document the effort they put in, you know, the, the tuners are always operating in, uh, in the shadows, and uh, nobody knows who they are. Everyone knows, everyone sees the picture of, you know, so-and-so winning a race. But, you know, if you didn't know that, uh, you know, Brent Thompson was the one who built my kid's triumph when he won Toledo or Columbus. I think it was Columbus half mile in 74. Um, you know, or Stormy Winter building the, the XR for Skip Axon when he won. You know, it's stuff like that. Um, it's just really cool. And it's that kind of, it's it's trivial, but it's also neat to see you know bill warner is the most successful tuner in racing history but if you didn't know that uh you know garth brow won san jose on one of one of uh, bill's bikes or scott parker won the santa fe short track on one of bill's bikes you know how how, where else are you going to find all that information because you know these guys are getting older and they're passing away you know and uh if we don't document their stories and their history it's all going to be lost and that's going to be a shame yeah, I I love exactly everything that you just said. You know, I I love everything about you know your memorial page. You know, when, when my cousin passed, we went back and forth and exchanged several emails back then, and yep. just to make sure you had all the facts and and a little bit of something about my cousin. And and I just mm-hmm. you know my family just really appreciates what you do. And and uh, man, right. I just I just keep doing what you're doing. But uh, you know, 
on that same note, you know, talking about mechanics and the winningest mechanic and stuff like that, we try to give them a voice here on the on the podcast as well. We try to talk mm-hmm. to different tuners. We've reached out to uh, Kenny Tolbert. He's he's laying low right now. I don't know if he wants to be the official winningest mechanic before he comes on and talks to me or what he's waiting on, but I think I'm just going to have to call him up one night. Right, right, to surprise him. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I got you. So you don't have to give away all your secrets, but how do you, how do you verify – you know, all the stats. I, I know you said you did a lot of research and a lot of emails, and then you said you also have the history Amigos. So tell us more about the, the history Amigos. The the history Amigos is uh, just a group of guys that came to appreciate each other. I think it was on the on Wayne Hosaka's flat track page that um, I know Bob Herrick was BH history. And it seemed like that, you know, if I posted some historical nugget, Um, he would have a positive comment to come back and then he was posting similar things. And so he and I just struck up, you know, an email conversation about stuff that way. And, um, and the same thing with, with, uh, Bill Milburn, uh, he, he's not an official amigo, but he's, he's, uh, very, very knowledgeable as well. But, uh, the, the name history amigos, Greg Pearson's dad, Bob, uh, God rest his soul. He was a great guy and he passed away last year, uh, after being sick for a while. But he he won the he witnessed Bob, Greg, and I interacting with each other and interacting with other people down at the the annual Neil Keen uh, birthday celebration down in St. Louis, and he he started calling us the History Amigos because we would just you know go off on tangents, or someone would someone would ask a random question, and we would just go off the rails with you know seeing where that would take us and coming up with different different answers and different this and different that. And, and, uh, you know, Bob and, uh, Greg actually have the vast majority of the periodicals. I don't have any, I mean, I didn't save anything from when I was growing up really, uh, or any cycle news or any of that stuff. You know, I've got a couple of media guides and I've done some research and documented that way. I, if I could go back in time, I would document a heck of a lot more. Uh, even my AMA timeline webpage that is in the process of being reconstructed, where I tried to identify key things that happened every year from 1903 to the present. Um, I would hear something, I would research it and go, yeah, that's valid and write it down and not at the time I wasn't documenting as much as I needed to. So this came out of cycle news, you know, issue this on this page, whatever. Uh, so now typically when something comes up, I'm able to, Hey, Bob and Greg, and we've actually been, you know, emailing, uh, pretty regularly so far this season. Hey, what do you think of this? What about that? When was the last time this happened? You're like when J.D. Beach won, won at the, the Super TT. It was, well, how long has it been since, you know, since we've had a first-time winner and this and that? And, you know, I think it was this. I think it was that. You know, we, we're, we're able to, to have a, a really colorful banter before we dig into the archives. But, uh, um, you know, so those are the guys that – and Greg Pearson, if you don't know, he wrote the, the two Grand National Championship books uh, that, uh, I have sitting here on my shelf. The first volume went from 54 to 69 and the second volume went from 70 to 75. And, uh, those are awesome. I have yet to have the time to, uh, um, dump all that into a uh, computerized format to where I could really do some fun things with that, uh, with those stats and that information that, uh, that uh, Greg and, and Bob went through all the periodicals researching stuff. And it's I, just the other day, in fact, um, I forget how it got brought up, but 
I think I just said, Hey, you know, we, you know, Tammy Kirk, when she finished racing at 89, how did all that go down? And between Bob and Greg, they dove through the different periodicals and were able to, uh, you know, share with, uh, with the others, you know, well, this magazine said this, and this article says this, and this article says that, and we're able to piece it all together. And, uh, and that's one thing that Greg had said is one, it was one of the interesting things of writing these, the two grand national books is that, that he was able to pull from so many different sources and then try to piece together a cohesive story for each event. Whereas you get to the eighties and the nineties and there's cycle news and that's it. So, you know, you, you have the one viewpoint of the event, which, you know, the, when you have different, different periodicals covering the same story, you're able to get little bits and pieces from each one and put together a more fuller story. Um, and I can't imagine how big their storage area is, but I mean, the, the stuff that Bob is able to uncover and discover and, and uh, share with me from, you know, from, I've asked him about stuff from, you know, when class he first started back in 33 and he's found stuff, you know, Bob put together a list of, uh, he put together his own book called the writer list uh, that lists every junior and expert uh, that had a pro license that he was able to find in a program or a writer list from 1965 to 1990, I think it was. And, uh, you know, just a tremendous resource. He, uh, I bought a copy from him. It's somewhere in the house. I have no idea where it is, but it's a tremendous resource. I've been able to look back and go, Oh, evil Knievel was number, what was he? 165 X, I think is an amateur slash junior in like 65 or 66. And, um, just amazing that the amount of of effort that uh, that uh, Bob and Greg put into keeping the the history of the sport alive. I'm just the guy that happens to have a web page and the wherewithal to uh, throw it out for public consumption. But those are the the history amigos, and I would not be wouldn't be near where I am without them. And and uh, you know, going way way back into history. Uh, Bill Milburn has just been, uh, as I mentioned earlier, tremendous, tremendous colleague and friend and has really encouraged me to dig deeper and document more. And uh, if you've ever been to the Donaldson's uh, cycle shop down in St. Anne, Missouri, I think most, if not all of the bikes that are back in the museum area are Bill's. And I know he just mentioned to me the other day that uh, um, we talked shortly after Gene Romero passed and he had mentioned that I think he's got 15 of Gene's bikes from what Gene used to race, you know, over the years that he raced, he raced 16 seasons, um, you know, won a few races, you know, the little Daytona 200, eh, a little race, right? Uh, <laughs> right, right. The Sacramento, Sacramento 50 miler, uh, you know, our, our guys go 25 and they're, and that's a big deal, but, you know, try to imagine 50 miles on, you know, two inch wide tires or, you know, <laughs> uh, with no brakes back in, back, back in the day, like they used to, you know, and most of Gene's photos, he doesn't have gloves on even, you know, just, uh, it was a different time. That's for sure. Greg came and found me in Atlanta, gave me a copy of each of those books too. So no, I appreciate it. And, uh, one thing I didn't know about you until we started doing some research for your interview is that. You're on the AMA Hall of Fame selection committee for dirt track. You guys decide yep. wh who goes on the ballot and what goes on the ballot, and then you're the guy who writes the bios for those for those people that get nom nominated. 
what else do you do? Is that is that pretty much the gist of it? For the for the committee, that's that's kind of what our role is right now. So anyone can fill out an application for anybody, and then we get uh, we get all the applications. And this is all on the AMA website. If you look at the Hall of Fame website, um, so we at the, in the spring of every year we get a list of all the new applicants. We decide if. If, which of them are worthy to be considered candidates. Um, so we do a weeding out thing there. Um, and then we compare, we consider all the candidates and figure out which ones are worthy to be nominees. And then we decide how many we want to put forward onto the ballot. And then once that decision is made, uh, typically I write up the, um, the biography that goes on the ballot and uh, a big part of that is what their what their history was, what their career stats were, which that's where I lean on uh, Bob Herrick a lot and Greg Pearson a lot if I don't have the information myself. And then all the ballots go out. And if uh, everyone didn't know, if you are an AMA life member, you get to vote since 19, since 2016, you get to vote for the Hall of Fame. So if you are a life member of the AMA and you don't get a ballot by the end of May, you should Go to my website and uh, slash AMA Hall of Fame, and uh, there's a link there that shows you who to contact to get a ballot for the Hall of Fame so you can vote for um, the individual that we're putting up this year against, uh, you know, there's five categories, and the three competition categories all go head-to-head between, or the five competition categories. There's motocross and supercross is one, road race is another, off-road is a third, flat track is a fourth and then you have specialty competition so all of those five they typically only put two or three in the hall of fame a year so um you know it's it's uh it's it's a tough tough road to hoe but you know one of the things i'm pretty proud of is that if you remember dave despain had a hall had a dirt track hall of fame for a while mm-hmm. and when i joined the committee there were two individuals that were in the dave despain dirt track hall of fame that were not in the ama hall of fame and over the last five years, I had nominated those two riders and got both into the AMA Hall of Fame. So that I'm pretty excited about that I was able to kind of put a bow on that and uh, put the last two guys, Alex Jorgensen and Ronnie Jones, uh, were the last two guys that were in the Davis Bain Hall of Fame that were not in the AMA Hall of Fame and now they're all in. So that's, that's, that's a, I'm pretty proud that I was able to play a minor role in getting that accomplished. Man, that that's awesome. I love that. And so everybody listening, if you're a life member, be sure and vote on Flat Trackers to get them all in the AMA Hall of Fame. Maybe one day when I retire, maybe I can go in there. Maybe I don't know. It's been 11 years uh, announcing all the Grand Nationals, so that's that's a goal of mine. But that's up to somebody else. So you're also a chairman for the commission to rewrite the AMA Amateur Rulebook for Flat Track. So what what all is that entail? I mean, that's got to be a whole lot. But can you sum that up a little bit? I think you just did. Yeah, the the AMA decided they they had for since 1968. I think they started out with the AMA Congress, which evolved from the AMA Competition Committee, which used to get together every year and decide uh, what rules to change for uh, for competition. And so in '68, I believe it was, they came up with a Congress, and at some point they started electing officials from or congressmen from all over the country, and they would come to the AMA headquarters at the, in the fall and decide what they were changing in the rule book. Um, at the end of last year, 
they decided they needed to kind of change how things were going because they were seeing a lot of uh, uh, stagnation in how things were being run. So they decided to adopt an FIM type strategy where they have commissions. And so the flat track commission is, I think there's 15, 16 individuals um, from all over the country. We've got guys from the East coast, West coast, a lot of us from the Midwest. They asked me to be the chairman and we're in the process of rewriting the, the amateur rule book to try to bring it up to date. There's some language in there that can be traced back to the fifties that has never been adjusted. It's long overdue to be rewritten. Um, and so we'd broken, the broken the group out into a couple of different working groups and, and discussed a few things. And um, it's been a long process. It's a challenging process. There's uh you know, there's, there's uh, I think there's uh, there's some, some good things that will come out of it. It's trying to, uh, you know, get, uh, make sure that we have all the I's dotted and T's crossed. And there are some really, really cool things that, that I think are going to be uh, beneficial, you know, back in the day, um, the AMA rulebook used to be called the Manual of Instruction, and it used to not only have your list of rules, but it used to explain to you how to kind of put on an event. And if you read the AMA Amateur Rulebook, it doesn't really tell you how to run an event. It just it's a list of do's and do nots. Um, and so I, I'm trying to take it back to where, you know. I think part of the reason why we don't have as many promoters is because those promoters don't know where to go to find out how to run events. Um, and word of mouth is great, but you know, that we have a lot of, a lot of really knowledgeable people on this commission that can share their experiences. And I think help make the world a better place if, uh, if we can condense all that down and put it into words. So that's, the the first draft has gone out for review, and I'm sure it's going to be continued to be massaged over the course of the of the summer. And uh, I've already gotten some good feedback, so I'm just kind of spearheading it and kind of driving it. I've got uh, a lot of things that I would like to see in, but it's not a uh, it's not a dictatorship. It's not it's not going to be my way because um, there's a lot of positive things that people do that just because I don't know about it doesn't mean that it's the wrong way. And so I've been. It's been very uh, interesting to hear how, you know, this group does it in District 6, and this group does it in District 14, this group does it in District 36, and so on and so forth. Just, just to hear the different ways that we're all kind of doing similar things and then trying to find how we can harmonize together and, and uh, be better. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of duplicity, duplication, redundancy in the book, and that was step one. I wanted to get rid of it. Um, there's just a lot of things that on page 14, it tells you you can do X. And on page 37, it says you can't do X. Well, then, you know, we need to get rid of that, that uncertainty and that ambiguity and uh, clean up the language. You know, I've been blessed to uh, have a real passion for the English language. And so I've been going through and uh, cleaning things up and uh, editing things. And uh, when it's all said and done, I think it'll be a market improvement from where it is now. Um, whether it gets accepted or not, we'll have to wait and see on that one. But it's been a an eye-opening experience when you actually sit and sift through the whole thing cover to cover and see what's actually in there. Yeah. And there's a lot of rules that a lot of rules in there that I couldn't believe are in there. But uh, when you actually sit down and break it down, it's like, wow, why is this here? You know. But it's uh, 
it's been it's been an interesting experience thus far. I will say that. Man, it's it sounds like a lot of tedious work, and my hats off to you for for doing that. You know, because you know you don't even have you know a dog in the fight. You know, so to speak. You're not you don't have a racer. I mean, you do put on races, but not having a racer and not you know. I don't know. I just my hats off to you for getting that done, and and it sounds like it's been keeping you really busy. Have you been able to keep up with the AFT season at all? I mean, we've, we're five races into the 2019 season. Have you paid attention? Have you watched any of the races? I have just on the periphery, to be honest. I did watch bits and pieces of of the Daytona race. I uh, I watched the last ten laps of the Super TT and. Other than that, I've just been following it through the live timing app or the AFT app on my phone. Um, uh, you know, the, the there were a handful of things that that I was really surprised. You know, when when they went with the production rule change this year that allowed them to go up to 900, um, I thought that was a curious decision. I don't know how many of those water cooled bikes can get up to 900. I remember Bill Warner saying that the Kawasaki couldn't get anywhere near 900, that it pretty much maxed out somewhere below 750. Um, I have no idea where the Harley is now. Uh, I don't think anyone knows where the Harley is now. Um, right. I, you know, I, and I really expected that just going to a larger engine size was probably going to give the Harley bigger problems than what they already had. Um, obviously I was wrong because they've had, you know, a, a slew of top, uh, top four finishes, top five finishes already this year, which, um, you know, I, I heard Sammy was doing really, really good at, uh, Paris before the red flag. I didn't see any of it, but I saw that he finished up on the box. So that's, that's good for them. It was going to be curious to see how they, how they did on the first mile at uh, Sacramento, but I hear that's been postponed. So I guess we'll have to wait for, is it Springfield? The next one. Yep. Springfield already? will be next. That, yep. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see how they do uh, on that. You know, the, in the past couple of years, the Harley has been, it'd have a good week and then a bunch of bad weeks and then a good week and a bunch of bad weeks that, um, you know, they've been a, a very hot and cold kind of team. We'll see what goes on there. I've been really surprised that uh, the factory Indians had a couple of DNFs this year with, Meese driving out of uh, Daytona and uh, Bronson dropping out of, I think, Fort Worth. That was a surprise that the factory bikes were having some glitches. Um, it's the, I really expected J.D. Beach to come out of the blocks and do really well. You know, he finished on the podium at Daytona last year. He'd been on the podium in the past. So I expected him to do really well. And then I remember he was doing well at the at the Atlanta short track last year before uh, – to get a flat tire but you know those first three four races he just did not do very well at all i thought that was really surprising of course then at the super tt um you know I, that that one it was so good to see a first time winner it's been what's it been nine years six years i don't have the number in front of me but it's been it's been quite a while since we had a first time winner a, a record length i remember do i remember looking at that i think it's been i don't even remember don't remember. Maybe ten years. Has it been ten years? No, it can't be. It's been five years because Br- uh, Briar won 2014 at, da- at Daytona. Yeah, so five Briar, year, yep. five, yeah. So five year, five whole seasons without a first time winner. It's never happened before. We've never gone that long, which tells you kind of the state of the of the the sport that we're in. You know, there's the the talent level. Uh, I'm not saying anything bad against the 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 guys that are out there hustling and trying, but. 
you know, it's definitely not like the, not like the old days. I just looked this uh, just a minute ago and we've got 10, 10 full-time racers in the twins division that have won a national. And that's, you know, you've only got 10, you know, back in the, my friend Bob put together a list that's on my blog that uh, I think at the end of the 1980 season, there were 15 full-time <clears throat> active racers who had won a mile national. So not even counting short track TT or half mile, you know, back in, at the end of 80, you had, you could, and back then they had 15 guys would line up for a mile national. You could have everybody line up at a net, at a mile national that had won one before, you know, that, that is how, that's how far we have uh, we've dropped in the, you know, since, since those days. Um, but it was great to see JD win it. You know, when, when I, when I turned on the event uh, late at night, when I got home and noticed, Oh, they're still racing. Okay. I'll watch it on the, on the live stream through the app. And uh, you know, I hadn't watched any of the racing during the day. So it took me a while to figure out what, what the course looked like. But it, it, if you took the jumps out, it looked like a road race. You know, it had slight elevation changes. It had a lot of sweeping corners. And I thought, wow, this, this track looks like a road race with a couple of jumps thrown in. And as the race wore on, JD got stronger and stronger, which he's used to running, you know, long, windy courses like that. You know, mo most of, uh, you know, his dirt trackers were used to four left-hand turns, and that's about it. You know, to have a track that's windy and has all kinds of different elevation changes that you know, that's not taking anything away from JD at all. Don't, you know, I certainly hope I don't sound like that I'm dismissing it all because he's been well worthy of, uh, of being, uh, you know, capable of winning a national. And it, and it, I think it just worked out for him that that was the kind of track that he was able to get a rhythm better than Briar. And you can see Briar just seemed to get a little tight as they're as the race went on and it worked to JD's benefit and it was, it was great to see him win, but I was surprised to see him struggle that early. So those were, and, you know, the, the other thing that really has uh, left me speechless this year is Brian Smith's struggles. And then for him to miss two races uh, to get ready for uh, the mile stretch, um, you know, that, that has been very unexpected. You know, I, I'm sure that everyone, them included, expected they were going to come out of the box with uh, these new Kawasaki's and just go for broke. And, you know, he's only collected a handful of points and just been really struggling everywhere they went. So um, I haven't seen the bike. I don't know if you have any comments on if it's, is it the chassis? Is it the engine? Is it, you know what it is. I haven't watched any of the races to really get a feel for what he might be struggling with. Um, but uh, you know they're they're sharp guys and they're going to get it figured out, I'm sure. But uh, those are kind of the things that between the the Harley and uh, the DNS with the Indians and Brian Smith and JD Beach struggling, and then the fact that Jared has you know, quote unquote, only one win. Uh, although kudos to him for notching win number 41 a couple of weeks back, you know, one of only four guys to have done that in history. Um, that's pretty cool. But, you know, when the guy has won, you know, most of the races over the last two years, you know, to have one in five races seems like, oh, he's slumping. Well, he's not slumping, you know, he DNF'd at Daytona, but they're going to get that ship turned around. And I'm sure Jared knows that it's a long season. Uh, it's great to see Breyer uh, running up top like he has, uh, you know, that he hasn't missed the podium yet. But I'm sure Jared knows that there's 
you know, 13 more races to go or whatever it is. And it's uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that point lead kind of grows and shrinks as the, as the season goes on. It could be, and, and Brandon is looking really strong already this year. He and Brent uh, Armbruster are doing a great job together. Um, so, and we'll see if the Yamaha can be uh, competitive on the, on the circle tracks. That should be interesting to see. I think the biggest surprise to me was, you know, some of the mechanicals you mentioned, Breyer actually broke the shifter off at the last race in Paris. Uh, I've been surprised how good the Harleys have been performing, you know, with uh, Salmon got a, a third place finish. Finally, they're fourth and fifth in the point standing. So Harley's getting things turned around. And, uh, you know, I think the the lack of Brian Smith um, looking to see, to see what he can do, you know, his first race back after skipping a few rounds, and I've heard they're going back one generation on their, you know, their machine that they call the Crosley Howerton machine. They don't even want to be called Kawasaki. So looking forward to see what they do at Springfield now that we are skipping the uh, Sacramento Mile weekend. So it's been exciting so far, and I can't wait for the rest of the season. Um, Bert, are you attending any of the Nationals this year? I am going to go to Lima. Uh, my wife and I, and uh, my wife and I went there last year and hung out with. Uh, with Bob Herrick, my history amigo, and that was actually the, I, yeah, the first uh, national I've been to in maybe five years, six years, and uh, Jared Meese, I don't know if you know him or not, but he has been a great supporter of uh, the Darien Classic for many, many years, um, and so when he, since he's promoting that event with his wife, Nicole, I figured that, uh, you know, we would help him out the, the best way possible, buy a ticket, go sit in the stands. And so that's what we did last year. Had a good time. I uh, was able to see uh, Jared there and, and uh, you know, a couple of the other guys that uh, used to come up to our event. It's real tough for them, you know, to come and hit the Darion Classic anymore because, uh, you know, the way the AFT does their schedule for the Red Mile the next day, you know, they got to be down there at 9 o'clock in the morning on Saturday, whereas when, when you and I were racing, you could pull into the pits at 3 o'clock for a night race and, those days are long gone. So, you know, even though we've got a 10 o'clock curfew and, you know, we even moved the schedule on last year so that guys would be done. On, I think we finished our junior expert division uh, at like 9.15 or something like that. So everyone was able to get loaded up and get on the road uh, by 10, 10.30. But, you know, that's a long drive to get down to, to Kentucky. And we're, we're blessed that we were, we've been able to, um, you know, give these guys a good show and give them a good track and we get a great crowd that comes out and supports, you know, flat track racing. And, um, so yeah, so Lima is the one race that we go to. I really don't have any interest in going to, a, to any of the others. Um, that one I go because I get to hang out with my history amigos and, uh, and it's helping Jared and Nicole out. If you want to keep flat track going, buy a ticket and go sit in the grandstands, you know, it's, uh, that's that's the number one because every every ticket goes directly to the promoter, you know, and that's something that uh, you know don't don't hit them up asking for for handouts or anything like that. But you know, you buy a ticket, go sit in the seats, and and that helps uh, keep uh, more promoters interested in doing races. So that's what um, I'm more than happy to drive down to Lima there Saturday morning, hang out with my buddies, see some racing. He, he just did. I, mean, I was just so impressed with. Um, you know, I, last year, you know, I grew up racing. I didn't grow up, but when I turned expert, we would go to Ohio and race the regionals out there. And um, I was so impressed with the way that as soon as 
as soon as a pack of riders were getting off the track, Jared had five or six pickup trucks with drags out on the track immediately. You know, every time they wanted to drag the track, he had his, you know, the, the troops were mobilized. They were in the cars, they were idling, they were ready to go. You know, there's so many times where it's like, all right, we've got to water the track. Where's the water truck? Oh, Bob's got the key. Where's Bob? Well, Bob's getting the ear of corn at the concession stand or, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've all been there. It's like, what the hell is going on? But, you know, Jared, he had those guys, you know, they, they were in lockstep. They were, it was a, it was a military grade operation. It was really impressive to see um, that he had it. He had it nailed down, you know, and, and he was busy doing his stuff, you know, but, but he had put people into positions of, of authority to execute the, the vision that he had or he and Nicole have, you know, I don't want to dismiss that at all. It's definitely a team show, but I was just super impressed with how when it's time to groom the track, all hands on deck, groom the track, and they would make a couple laps and get off and the next group of riders would come out. It was a really, 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 really well done thing. Probably the best, uh, best cushion track prep I've ever seen. It was just really, really impressive. And hats off to, to him and, and Nicole for, you know, just, just knowing what's got to be done and doing it the right way. Absolutely. We're going to have Nicole on here in the next couple of weeks to talk more about her event that's coming up at the last Saturday of June. Of course, it's Lima, Ohio. So we're already near the end of the episode, and it's time for Graham's question. And she, she says, you're so passionate for motorcycle racing, and it's unmatched with anybody else. Is there anything outside of flat track racing that you're this passionate about? Um, you know, I used to do stand-up comedy. I did that for three years. Uh, wow. I play, uh, I play drums and sing in a rock band. Um, that's, you know, so between, between, uh, the rock band thing and I, I don't do stand up comedy anymore, but that's, uh, um, that's kind of what, if I'm passionate about anything, I'm an engineer by trade. Uh, so I do, I, I design packaging equipment and, uh, yeah, I just try to put everything I can into whatever I'm doing. I, I've got, uh. I've got a passion for a lot of things in life. I've got a lot of passion for my wife. I could chase her around the house all day long if I could, but, uh, um, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I still enjoy good comedian. There's not a lot of them out there anymore, but, um, you know, if you talk to me often enough and especially after a couple of beers in me, the, the, com- the comedian comes out again and, uh, yeah, I, I just enjoy having, uh, having a good time. That's, that's, uh, the key to life is just enjoy what you're doing. You know, life's too short to hate doing what you're doing. And at some point I'll probably stop. At some point I'll stop doing the promoting thing. uh, And I would love to be able to focus more on the history stuff. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm passionate about is music. I could, I'd love to do more, uh, more stuff with my music. Okay. Sounds good. Time for our rapid fire questions. So the first thing that pops into your mind when I ask you the next few questions, are you ready? Yep. Favorite motorcycle you've ever ridden? Favorite motorcycle I ever rode was my Suzuki 200 in an Astro frame because it was my first framer, and that thing loved being sideways. And I just, I won more races in my career on that than on anything else that I ever rode. So that I'd probably ride it now and just be terrified with that screaming two-stroke. But <laughs> that's 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 a bike that I uh, I have the fondest memories of. Okay, what's your favorite racetrack? My favorite racetrack is uh, the Sheboygan County Fairgrounds. <laughs> I haven't raced there in 20-some years, but, uh, boy, if you want to see an old-school race, race, I, we, as I mentioned earlier, we grew up uh, at Santa Fe Speedway, and I have always tried to 
Um, tell you a quick story that uh, my brother Jim had said that he would like to have seen the, the Dairyland Classic become a bigger event so that people in Wisconsin could see what he does. And he specifically named guys like Mike Hacker and Kenny Coolbeth and uh, Willie McCoy that, you know, if they could come up here and put on a show for people, that'd be great. So I try to, I try to do that as well as the uh, recapture the spirit of Santa Fe Speedway. You know, there's not a lot of downtime, man. It's go, go, go. It's all about racing. And uh, I've been blessed to have a number of people uh, tell me, yeah, you captured the spirit pretty close to what Santa Fe Speedway was like. So that's been, that's been really, really great to uh, have some people who I really admire tell me that I got close. And that's, that's really special to me to be able to say that it's, similar to recapturing what Santa Fe Speedway was like on a, on a Wednesday night, but it's May 31st. That's so come awesome. on out. That's awesome. So you said you've worn just about every hat involved in putting on a race, which, uh, you know, I, I can't think of many, many people have done every job that that's involved in putting on a race. So which position was your favorite starter? I okay. loved, loved right. flagon, uh, grew up watching Steve Ferracci at Santa Fe Speedway. And mm-hmm. I flag, I waved the flags exactly the same way that he waved the flags. And I, and I did love to, I loved watching him the way that he did the flags and he did the grand national stuff, uh, in the eighties, I think in early nineties, uh, as well. Um, but I just thought he was just such a, such a, a class act, the way that he, he handled himself and the way that he, uh, um, did that. And I just thought it was just super cool. So I just, I studied him and watched him. And when I had the opportunity to wave flags, I did it exactly the way he did. And, you know, I transport myself back to, you know, being at Santa Fe Speedway, 1975. And, you know, when I'm, when I get the chance to flag a race, that's what I think. Even if it's little, little kids on eighties dipping by, I'm thinking it's, you know, Mike Gerald and Kenny Roberts and Mike Kidd and Steve Elo and, you know, Kenny McDonald and guys like that. So, Charlie Chapel and guys cool. like that would just be awesome. That's cool. In your opinion, who is the most talented rider to ever throw a leg over a motorcycle? Wow, that is a great question. The most talented rider to ever throw a leg over a motorcycle. Um, I would say Jay Springsteen. He was a guy that wow. was tops, and, and I, don't know, I don't know how, how to phrase this. You know, back it was the it was mid seventies. I don't know that they ever really trained. I think he just hopped on the bike and and went and uh, went really fast for a you know a large number of years. But I think that he was the most. I would guess that he's the the most just purely talented individual to ever race flat track. Awesome. If you could add one race to the twenty twenty AFT schedule, where would it be at? If I could add one race, um, well, Indy, but that's not going to be a dirt track anymore. Uh, for, for my money, the Indy Mile and the Decline Mile are, were the were the two where I think those were better races than Springfield. Nothing against Springfield, but um, I just thought that that the that the tracks were just a little bit. They they offer a lot more mix up in the in the corners. I always liked uh, watching Indy. Um, the last race that they ran at the coin where uh, Brian Smith and Jared Meeks and Kenny Kubeth were dicing it up through the corners that you don't see anymore. Um, so since Indy's, I, I would pick Indy, and if not there, I'd pick the coin. Okay. As long as, as, long as I'm not paying for it. <laughs> there you go. 
Hey, Bert, what are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? Uh, I'm proud that the Lord has blessed me with the life that I have. I cannot believe the, the, the things that I have been allowed uh, to do with his blessings and his grace, how much he has looked out over me and kept me safe all these years. It's, uh, that's, that's, that's something that I'm very humbled by. That's a great answer. And, uh, man, I just really want to say thank you so much for your time. And here is your chance to say thank you to anyone that you would like to. And you thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to, to share my passion for the history of the sport. Um, I have to thank my, my parents for having me. I'm glad that Christmas party of 67 didn't go as well, and I was born nine months later. But they, they showed all of us uh, what a loving relationship is and how, you know, how great the sport of flat track can be. You know, if, if we didn't have flat track growing up, we wouldn't have taken any vacations anywhere because every weekend we went racing. And so they have been an inspiration for many, many years. You know, my sisters are, are part of our organization and they not only help, they drive a lot of the train. You know, I, I, I try to be the face of the, of our events, but you know, my, my younger sister, Chris puts on a hell of a lot of effort into the events as well. Uh, she doesn't like to be quite the, the face of the organization, but she does great. And that's the thing, my, my wife and my daughter for allowing me to uh, chase these wild dreams whether they were dreams when we started, who knows? But they've they've given me the latitude to pursue some of these events, and I'm I'm grateful for all of our sponsors and most of all all of the the people that come out and enjoy the races. Because if the day that people stop coming into the grandstands is the day I stop putting on a race. Because I have no interest in putting on a race for the sake of putting on a race. I want to put on a show for people to enjoy the old school flat track racing that we can put on. And when people no longer want to see that, then I'll go do something else. I get you. Uh, one more thing I want to thank is everyone that has supported our family with the Steel Shoe Fund. That is a nonprofit organization that my parents set up back in 1997 with the goal of helping injured flat track racers with their medical bills. Uh, as I said, we started that in 97. We do one big fundraiser every year, which is a three-hour endurance ice race on a seven-mile course on a frozen lake up here in Wisconsin. And uh, that's our primary fundraiser, and that that gives us a little bit of cash that we're able to help and distribute out to uh, to injured racers. We just helped a couple of races get back from uh, the AFT National out in Arizona, uh, help help with some of their medical expenses that they could get home and uh, get some of the treatment they're looking for or they need. And uh, so we've just been very, very blessed to be able to help out uh, dozens and dozens of racers over the last 20 years with that uh, with that cause. And, um, that is steelshoefund.org is the website for that. If you'd like to find out more about uh, what we do with that. So that's, thank you to everyone that has helped us uh, keep going on with that. That's been a, a great, a great uh, thing that we've been able to do for 20 some years now. Bert, thank you so much for your time. Much success on all of your events and uh, continue doing what you're doing. And I definitely appreciate every time uh, we text message back and forth, every email that we have back and forth, I certainly appreciate it. Yeah, it's my, it's my pleasure. And uh, DairylandClassic.com is the portal for all three of our events this year, May 31st, June 8th, and August 3rd. And it's also the portal to the history section that's under construction. But you can you can see a list of every uh, classy national winner since 1933 and a variety of other uh, history stuff out there. 
and there's every day I think of something else that's got to be added in there. So it's an ongoing, ongoing process, but always trying to work on that to make that better for uh, for everyone to enjoy. So thanks for the opportunity, Scotty. I really appreciate it, and hopefully, uh, hopefully our paths will cross when I come down to Lima there at the end of June. Sounds good. I'll see you in Lima. Thanks, Bert. You bet. Take care. Bert Sumner, ladies and gentlemen. That was good stuff, man. He uh, He's very passionate about the sport, and you can definitely tell. When he starts talking about it, it's just right there, and it's all in his mind. I mean, he, I know he's got notes, and he's got notes, and he's got books, and he's got all this stuff, but a lot of it is in his mind. He knows he knows things that I will never, ever know. There's a lot of things that, that he's part of that I, I kind of knew about and heard about, but didn't know he was the guy behind it. Um, so it's cool to kind of hear, uh, you know, the origin of how all the all those things came to be. And the Steel Shoe, uh, what was it, Steel Shoe? The Steel Shoe Fund. Yeah, that's yeah, him. I didn't, know, I didn't know that was him either. I kind of heard about it. You know, most of that stuff gets taken care of by the Class 79 and friends. Curtis Lee went down at the Arizona Super TT right there on the, on the tabletop finish line and and uh, I guess um, so he needs some help getting home. That's the rider he was talking about. He helped him get home. That's awesome. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. That's, That's good cool. stuff. That's really cool. It's always good to know that there's other people out there that, that are there to help riders. Curtis Lee isn't the first person that the Steel Shoe Fund has helped. Um, I'm sure they've helped several riders as well. So um, it's good to know that those things, those people exist that, that are there to put those things together to help these riders when they need it. Did you hear Bert Sumner's flat track fact? He dropped a flat track fact of the week. We kind of dropped it there, kind of near closing. I don't know if you're paying attention or not. What was what, what? What was it? When we were talking about 2019, he was telling us what is what he was surprised about and stuff like that. And one yeah. of the surprises was JD Beach was a first-time winner on the Grand National Series in five years, which Briar Bauman won his first Grand National in the Premier Class back in Daytona on the short track in 2014. I did hear that, and I. I'm a little confused by that because I thought Briar Bauman's first twin win was in Lima in 2017. That is correct. But back before you got involved in flat track, the Grand National class, you rode the little bikes or the 450s on the short tracks and TTs, uh, and you rode the big bikes on the half miles and miles. So, so he, he won Daytona on then, a 450. You're right. Okay. Which, was a, which was the premier class. It was the Grand National. Back then, it was the Grand National expert class. Yep. I so still, I still don't first. fully understand that whole thing, but maybe one day I will. Maybe one day. Well, and and you know what, Carter? If you don't get it, and you've been around the sport for what two, three years, yep. maybe some other people don't get it either. So it's it's probably a common mistake, but you know, and I'm I'm maybe talking for the old school people. So maybe some people are just thinking about the AFT Twins class. But either way, uh, his flat track fact was. JD Beach was the first first time winner since Briar Bauman in 2014. Interesting. So, so we got that one in. Did you have one already that you were gonna lay out there in case that didn't come in the interview or what? I, I do have one in my back pocket, so I'll go ahead you, and share it with you've you. You've right always now. got so, some in your back pocket. I love it. What you in got? The, in the three AFT classes at Paris, yeah, the winner led every lap. Really? Yep. So Corey Texterwood led every lap in the production twins class. Yeah, Ryan Wells led every lap in the AFT singles class. He did. And Brandon Robinson led every lap in the AFT twins class. You rob led every lap in the twins. You're right. Yep. And and cop didn't cop lead every lap. Nope. 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 So the hooligans uh, had to be hooligans. Right. Had to be different. <laughs> Andy Debrino. Yeah. Who I called him out there in his chrome leathers because they're silver and shiny. You know they're not really chrome. I'm not 
I'm not stupid, but yeah. I call him Chrome because he's in the hooligan class. Yeah. He led the first few laps, and then Joe Cop got by, and Joe Cop uh, proceeded to win. So that is right. they had, the hooligans had to be different. You they know? always got to be different. I love it. Um, that's pretty cool. That's a good one. I like it. That's good stuff. Love it. Guess what? What? I got a weekend off. Do you? Oh, that's right. You're not doing anything this weekend. I'm home. I had to change my flight schedule, and I'm sure everybody else did too, and, oh, yeah. and change their their trips and all that stuff. So I'm actually home this weekend, and then I'll start heading up to Springfield probably Thursday because I'll be announcing the uh, the TT, the amateur TT for Steam Nice on Friday night, and then uh, Saturday's the All Star National Flat Track Series in conjunction with the AFT Singles, and then Sunday, of course, is the legendary Springfield Mile. Every single year on Memorial Day weekend, I love it. And Labor Day weekend. And Labor Day. But we're 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 on the Memorial Day weekend this oh, week. I, I know. I just want to give a shout out so people can start planning ahead because Memorial Day, Labor Day, it's time to go to Springfield. Graham's listen, Graham's already bought her tickets. Yeah. And she's already got her hotel reservations for both. I love so, it. So Yeah, and Graham, you know what? My hat's off to Graham because she drove all the way out to California by herself. She was at Paris until the very last race was done on the, on the Friday night. Mm-hmm. And then on Saturday, she paid for a ticket, but I actually talked to Cameron the, you know, with AFT events and got her a VIP pass. So she nice. got into the little, the little VIP area just so she could rub shoulders with the big dogs. And yeah. you know what? She was there until she was there until after I left. That's badass. Gotta love Graham, man. I'd so I have a funny story before we jump off here. Goon hit me up. Uh, he hit me up and he's like, "I met Graham and I met Graham." And <laughs> he was so happy that he met Graham, and I'm sure Graham was so happy that she met him. Like, I don't think she knew Kevin before he did the off the groove interview, but she can't get enough of his content now, right? Like, she watches right, his right. pit walks and all of his live streams. Oh, yeah. I love it. See, like we're bringing people together that didn't even know each other in the flat track community, Scotty. I love it. Right. Yeah, and that, and and you know what, my hat's off to Rod Lake, who sponsored me for for several years. He sponsors a lot of different riders. He actually went and sat with Graham at the short track because I was roaming around the pits. Because during the races, I never get to do that, so I can't sit still if I'm not announcing. And and so I roamed around the pits, and I looked up, and Rod Lake sitting with Graham for at least 45 minutes, and they had a heck of a time. They had a great conversation. Uh, There's a promoter there from Phoenix that sat with Graham for a while. So every time I looked up, different people were hanging out with Graham and. And that's what this sport is all about. She's famous, man. She's famous. She's more famous than me. I don't know about that. You're pretty damn famous. Nah. Let's put a button on this one. You ready? You done with this? Yes. Yeah, smash that like button. Tell them what Tell to your do. Friends. Yeah. Give us a follow. Tell all your friends. And we appreciate every listener. We try to get back with every comment that we get. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next Friday. Sideburn Magazine, dude. I still can't believe Big it. Big time. Yeah. We made it to the big time. We big time, man. We made it. We made it. All right, man. I gotta, I gotta shut this down. This is, this is a long episode, but you know that's fun. Right. There's a lot of people driving from California, so I'm sure they love the, love the, love the that's long episodes just point. as much as the short ones. That's a good point. I hope they enjoy it, and uh, we'll see everybody next week in Springfield. Peace.